Mark chapter 7. We're going to dive right back in, beginning with verse 31. And again, departing from the region of Tyre and Sidon, Jesus came through the midst of the region of Decapolis to the Sea of Galilee. Now, in Tyre and Sidon, we see Jesus crossing a radical religious barrier. Tyre and Sidon was not Jewish territory. For a rabbi to go to Tyre and Sidon, an area that was predominantly Gentile or non-Jewish, it was a no-no. It was a taboo. It was a non-negotiable for a rabbi, for a religious leader to cross that kind of a, of a barrier, a boundary, to enter into foreign territory. Well, it was nothing that the Pharisees would have done. It was not what the religious leaders would have done. No scribe would have done this. And yet Jesus, he goes to Tyre and Sidon, and he ministers to this Gentile woman whose daughter was demon-possessed. And it was a sweet story, but Jesus now, he's leaving Tyre and Sidon. He's making his way back to Jewish territory. But before he does, we're told here by Mark that he enters the, the region of Decapolis, the region of Decapolis. Decapolis is a compound Greek word. It's two words, deca and polis. Deca meaning ten, polis meaning cities. The region of Decapolis was a region on the eastern shore of Galilee that was compiled of ten Greek and Roman cities. This was also Gentile territory. Now, these 10 cities, they were known as being their own region, their own pocket of Greek and Roman culture, because they were surrounded by Jews. They were kind of the foreigners living in the midst of foreign territory, predominantly Jewish area, made up 10 cities, grouped together, made up of Gentiles. And so Jesus leaves one Gentile area and he progresses to another Gentile area, which is important and significant for us because Jesus is continuing in this section of scripture his ministry to the Gentiles. Now, no doubt, for the student of scripture, you understand that Jesus came to minister first to the Jews. He came as a Jew, born to Jewish parents, grew up in Jewish regions, Jewish cities, abided by a Jewish religion, his followers were Jews. His ministry focused mainly to Jews. Jesus died as a Jewish king, the king of the Jews. Jesus came to the Jews, but Jesus also came to the Gentiles. That Jesus would have a ministry to the Gentiles. We see this in the book of Acts, but even during his earthly ministry, Jesus, though sent to the Jews, does take time to minister to the Gentiles. And we see this in this particular section of scripture. And he does this for two important reasons. First, Jesus takes a, takes a moment, he goes to Tyre and Sidon, he comes down to Decapolis because he's wanting to contrast his ministry with that of the religious leaders. He's wanting to contrast what he had come to do with the traditional norm of the day. Now he's doing this mainly, I think, for his own disciples that are traveling with him. Jesus has already taught that he's come not to put new wine into an old skin, but to do something new, to do something fresh. That Jesus didn't come to take a new piece of cloth to sew it together to an old fabric. It doesn't work. 
Jesus has communicated time and time again that he's here to do something that transcends religion, that transcends Judaism. He's come to do something new. It's not an old covenant, but a new covenant. Now, he's contrasting himself with the religious leaders in the sense that he's going to the Gentiles. Now, the irony is that the Jews were called to be a light and a witness to the Gentiles. God called Abraham out of Ur of the Chaldeans, sent him to a land of promise, grew his descendants into a mighty nation, not because they were better than the rest of the world, but God called them out, set them aside, called them to be a holy people, gave them the law to govern their behavior, to contrast a holy life with a pagan life. The Jews were called and given preferential treatment with a purpose, to be an example, to be a witness, to be a beacon of a better way. But what had happened? The Jews had seen this preferential treatment given to them by God. They saw it as affirmation that they were better than the Gentiles. There was nothing that made the Jews any better than the Gentiles. They had just been given a different calling. And over time, we see that the Jews viewed the rest of the world, the rest of the world that they were supposed to reach, they were supposed to be a witness to, but what had happened? Judgment, they, they had become judgmental. They had become bigoted. They had become haters. They saw themselves as being better than the Gentiles, which is why they would have nothing to do with the Gentiles. The Gentiles, according to the Talmud, according to the the pervasive pervasive opinion of the day is that the Gentiles, on a good day, were simply to be fodder to stoke the fires of hell for bad Jews. I mean, you want to talk about hatred. They hated the Gentiles. And so Jesus going to the Gentiles, going to a predominantly Gentile area as a rabbi, he's contrasting himself. And why is he contrasting himself? He's contrasting his ministry with that of the religious leaders because ultimately he's wanting to correct a misconception. He's wanting to correct the misconception concerning God's heart towards the Gentiles. You see, Jesus loved the Gentiles as much as he loved the Jews. The Jews hated them, but Jesus loved them. The Jews wanted nothing to do with them, but Jesus came to save them. And so Jesus is going into Gentile territory, Tyre and Sidon, now here in Decapolis, to contrast his ministry, but to correct a misconception concerning the heart of God. Isn't it so true that legalism, traditionalism, religion, even in our lives, do you know a manifestation? Almost universally, it's a manifestation of our view towards other people and how it warps it. Religion gives us a sense of self-righteousness, a sense of pride, a sense of betterment towards those that aren't part of the religion. And Jesus is like, whoa, 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 whoa. The only thing that contrasts is that you're saved by grace through faith. It's not of yourself, it's a gift of God. Religion separates and it divides people. Jesus came to unify. Jesus came to do away with religion and introduce a relationship. Now Matthew tells us that while Jesus was in the region of Decapolis, that he healed many. That Jesus spent a considerable amount of time 
Now, if you're reading through Mark, you'll note that it's just a, a quick glance. It's just a, a pass-through. It, it gives you the idea that Jesus maybe didn't spend much time, but had two quick stops, and he's back to the Jews. No, Matthew indicates that Jesus spent a good amount of time in this region healing many people. Now, Mark only gives us one example of the ministry of Jesus in the region of Decapolis. He gives us an example of one of these healings that Matthew indicates. Verse 32, we're told that as Jesus is here, ministering in these 10 cities that they brought to him, one who was deaf and had an impediment in his speech. And they begged Jesus to put his hand on him. And he took him aside from the multitude and he put his fingers in the man's ears and he spat. Good old Southerner. He spat and he touched the man's tongue. Then, looking up to heaven, Jesus sighs, this exhale. And he says to the man, Epathra, that is, be open. And immediately we're told that the man's ears were opened, and the impediment of his tongue was loosed. And Mark says that he spoke plainly. Now let's begin with a bit of a description concerning this man. First, he's deaf. I believe that's pretty self-explanatory. doesn't need me to elaborate a whole lot. He can't hear. He's deaf. But we're also told that he had an impediment in his speech. Now, sadly, people have called this man mute. I heard several commentators refer to him as being mute. He's not mute. Mute kind of classifies a person as the inability to speak such as that there is a flaw or there is a problem within the vocal cords, such as he's not able to make sound. Mark seems to make a, 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 a kind of a distinction from that. He's not mute, but he has a speech impediment, which means literally that he had difficulty with speech. And this doesn't come as a surprise. If the man can't hear, then he lacks the ability to speak correctly. We, we learn that one of the ways, one of the main ways that we develop the ability to speak, to form words, is through a process of hearing a sound, observing an association, and then repeating the sound. I, I've got a 14-month-old at home. I'm watching this happen because you'll hold something up. You're making a sound. He's looking at it intently. He's kind of taking the sound that he's hearing. He's associating that with that object. He begins to try to replicate the sound. That's how we develop speech patterns. However, if you can't hear, then you have no ability to connect the sound with an object and thus, you're not able to form intelligent words. Now, with a lot of our science and advanced medical studies, we have begun to learn some ways around that. But during this time period, if you lack the ability to hear, you lack the ability to speak. Thus, he has an impediment in his speech. But understand that culturally, it went a little further than that. Okay, he's deaf. He has an impediment with his speech. He can't talk. But this was viewed as an indicator amongst the religious leaders that this man 
would have been demon-possessed. As a matter of fact, not just demon-possessed, but with an impediment to his speech, it was the pervasive idea that he was possessed with a demon that couldn't be exercised. Now, as the tradition went during this time period, exorcists of the day, whether it was pagan exorcist or Jewish religious exorcist, the very first part of the process of exorcising a demon in regards to the tradition was to first ask for the demon's name. That was how the process took place. So you would come up and you would ask the demon for the demon's name. What's your name? And out of the demon, my name is Legion. We actually see this happening within the ministry of Jesus. As Jesus goes to exercise demons, we find an association with the name of the demon. However, if you were unable to get the name of the demon, because of this impediment of speech, it was the traditional religious idea that you were begone or, or beyond being able to be exercised or freed or liberated or healed. And so traditionally, okay, they bring this man. He's deaf. He's got some physical problems. He can't speak, a byproduct of the deafness, but he's viewed by his friends as being possessed. He's possessed with a demon and the manifestation of this demon is that he can't talk. And because he can't talk, he can't be freed. He can't be liberated. The point, religion could do nothing for this man. Nothing. No pagan religion. No pagan tradition. No Gentile idea. But also no Jewish religious belief could liberate him. Religion failed this man and left him broken. With an ailment. Now, it's interesting to note that we're told here, they brought him, one who was deaf, and they begged Jesus to put his hands on him. You know, last time we were together, two weeks ago, we observed an interesting side note concerning this Gentile woman who comes to Jesus interceding on behalf of her little daughter who's demon-possessed, right? And we, we noted just an interesting kind of idea, at least an encouragement, that the faith of a mom saved her daughter. That Jesus worked in the life of this little girl, not because of the little girl's faith, or really anything to do with the little girl who is still at home possessed. But Jesus saw the faith of a mom, and he worked because of it. Now, that's not to say that this is the standard or that anybody can be saved by the faith of another person. That's not to say it, but to provide an encouragement to you moms out there with prodigals. Jesus sees and keep on asking and keep on seeking and keep on interceding and keep on praying because Jesus knows and Jesus sees. And Jesus might just work because of your faith. But in this story, we also see something interesting, something worthy of our notation. And the story with the Gentile woman, Jesus worked in the little daughter because of the woman's faith. Here, it's very clear that Jesus is now going to work in the life of this deaf, this deaf man with a speech impediment. Why? Because of his friends. They brought him and they begged him. Now understand that friends 
can have an important role in the life of other friends. Think about it. There was no way that this man had heard of Jesus. He couldn't hear. He had probably observed random points and excitement among the people, but this man had not heard any stories of what Jesus had done. He had never heard of Jesus healing lepers or restoring sight to the blind or causing the lame to walk. He had never heard of Jesus freeing people of demons possessing them. He had never heard the stories. He had never heard a sermon that Jesus had taught. He had never heard anything. Why? Because he couldn't hear. And yet his friends could hear. And his friends heard not just of what Jesus had done and was doing, but that Jesus had come to their region, that Jesus was in town. And so they look at their friend who's deaf, who has a speech problem, and they're like, he doesn't know that a savior is here. And so they go and they take him and they bring him and they put him before Jesus. And I'm sure the man's standing there with kind of like, I have no idea why I'm here. Because he's not begging. He's not mumbling, trying to get Jesus to do something with his speech impediment. They're begging because they know this man has not a clue. Now, it's interesting to note the important role that hearing plays in faith. This man couldn't hear, and it kind of got me thinking. The important role that our ears have in regards to our spiritual life. In Matthew, Jesus tells us, he makes, he makes a statement that indicates that healing, healing, it commences with the ears. Jesus says that their ears, speaking of the Jews, were hard of hearing, and their eyes they have closed, that they should see with their eyes or hear with their ears, lest they should understand with their heart and turn, so what? So that I will, would heal them, or I should heal them. Jesus is saying that if you had only heard, I could have healed you. Now there's a problem with this man, why? Because he couldn't hear. But in Romans, we're also told that faith, faith begins where? It begins with our ears. Faith comes by miracles? No. Scripture tells us that faith comes by hearing, and hearing by what? The Word of God. As we'll observe once we get into chapter 8, miracles don't produce faith. Supernatural events don't produce faith. They only actually produce a greater desire for more of the things that wow us, of the things that amaze us. Jesus would say, this generation, you, all you wanted was a sign. And Jesus had performed many of them, but what did they want? They wanted more. Faith comes by hearing and hearing by the word of God. So healing happens, it begins with our ears. Faith begins with our ears. Galatians tells us that sanctification or the process of us growing in our faith, of us growing in our relationship with Christ and us growing and us becoming Christ-like, it also continues with our ears. So faith begins in our ears, but also sanctification continues with our ears. Paul says to the Galatians, did you receive the spirit by the works of the law or by what? 
the hearing of faith, the continual hearing of faith, the ears. The ears play an important role in our faith, but also understand that hearing plays an equally important role in unbelief. You see, unbelief starts with our ears. In Hebrews, we're told that having been perfected, Jesus became the author of eternal salvation to all who obeyed him, of whom we have much to say. It's hard to explain since, why? You have become dull of hearing. It's interesting that our ears play such a big role in our spiritual lives, that the ears in so many ways is the gateway to faith. It's been said that eyes are the the gateway to the soul, the gateway to the heart, but I think ears are the gateway to our faith. Healing and faith, sanctification and unbelief, hearing. For homework, I want you this week to just do a word search or read through the first seven chapters of, of Mark again and just note how many times a miracle of Jesus Jesus working in a radical way through a person's life, how it began with hearing. I mean, think about our story with this Gentile woman. We observed that what happened? She heard, and then what did she do? She came. She heard. You see, this is why it's so important. This is why we pray. This is why Jesus exhorted time and time again, that you might have ears to hear what the Spirit wants to say. Jesus has mentioned this several times in the Gospel of Mark, and he will close every letter to the church in the book of Revelation with that phrase. May you have ears to hear, because hearing plays such an important role in faith. Now, this is why this poor man is at such a disadvantage, because he can't hear. And no doubt, his physical deafness is a picture of a greater deafness, a spiritual deafness. Now, here's my point. If hearing plays such an important role in faith, if, he, if hearing plays such an important role in healing, or plays such an important role in the work that Jesus wants to do in the lives of the lost, then the application, the manifestation, the implication for you and I, if hearing is such a big deal, well, there's two things we should know about ourselves. First, this is why we're told to go into the world and do what? To teach people, to share our faith, to speak words of what? a testimony to what Jesus has done in our lives. Why? Because people need to hear, because hearing is the starting point. If we're not fulfilling our commission, our calling, our purpose to go out and to speak, to tell people about Jesus, then there's a limitation to what Jesus can do. Our calling is to go into the world and tell people the good news of Jesus. Christian, are you doing that? When was the last time you told anyone of the radical transformational work Jesus did in your life. How Jesus took a person lost in their sin and then their trespasses, a person on the road to hell and damnation and changed you. Not through religion, but through a relationship, through the inside out, that Jesus gave you a new mind and a new heart and a new tongue, new ears, a new life, a new start. 
hey, you don't have to have your theology all buttoned up. You don't have to have even the answers to the questions to have a testimony. The Apostle Paul had all of the answers to the questions, but we see time and time again in the book of Acts that when Paul went to a place, where did he begin? He would go and either to the synagogue or to the marketplace, he would go to where there was people and he would tell his story, his testimony. How I was the chief enemy of, 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 of Jesus until I met him. And he knocked me on my rear and he changed my life forever and he set me on a new course. Folks, you have a testimony. And so our job, if, if faith begins with hearing, then there's an important reason you should be speaking. But also, I think we learned something else concerning these men. Because let's be honest, just because you go into the world or just because you go to your friends and you speak and you tell them about Jesus doesn't mean that they can hear you. Because some, sometimes they do and sometimes they respond. Sometimes, wow, you can, you can have a radical impact that moment. But there are times that they look at you with a blank face and they're like, I have no idea what you're talking. You sound crazy, man. They're deaf, spiritually deaf. And so what do you do in that point? Well, as these men did, the second application is that we're, yes, to go into the world, tell people, but we're also to bring the deaf to a place that they can encounter the very man that's going to heal them of their deafness and give them the ability to hear that we're to go and to speak, but we're to bring those who are deaf to a, an encounter with Jesus. These men didn't wait for their deaf friend to figure it out. Whether he knew it or not, they grabbed him. They're like, you're coming. And he's standing there. He's like, I have no idea what's happening, but okay, I'll roll. What else am I going to do? And they brought him. And they brought him to and. And they were, the entire time, Jesus, do something. He can't hear. He doesn't know. He won't listen. But they brought him to a place that he could encounter Jesus. Now, there's a question that comes to my mind. A logical manifestation of that point. Why are we as Christians, and you've heard it before, but why are we often encouraged to bring the lost to church to encounter Jesus? And, and you'll hear, bring the lost to church. Just bring them. And we'll have revivals and all kinds of things to try to entice people to bring their lost friends to church. Your friends need Jesus. Bring them to church. And we sit there and we think, okay, but if you're thinking logically, you're like, well, wait a second. Why do I need to bring them to church? I mean, is Jesus limited to church? Is like this where Jesus lives and such like in order for them to encounter Jesus, I got to bring them to Jesus's house, bring them to Jesus's home. No, Jesus doesn't live here. Like, and so I don't know if you've ever thought about it, but like, okay, why do we encourage people to bring the lost to church to encounter Jesus when they can technically encounter Jesus anywhere? You ever thought about that? I have. Now, biblically, we should note, that there's nothing intrinsically significant with the building known as the church. We, we know that the church is the people. It's not the building. There's nothing significant about this building. Nothing significant about the brick, the mortar, the pews, the high top tables, the sound system. 
There's nothing significant with the Baptist church and the steeple. It's not like the steeple gets it closer to God or something. I don't know. Like there's nothing intrinsically significant biblically about a building. We don't go to a a temple made with hands. But Jesus made it clear that we are the temple of the living God. That Jesus doesn't dwell in a house made by man, but dwells in the heart of man. That when you go, that you're taking Jesus with you. So we understand that biblically. But we would be amiss if we didn't note a cultural significance that does exist within the building known as the church. You see, the church building is not significant for any biblical reason. But a church building is significant for one reason. Because what it has culturally become known to represent. Now let me explain. It is a simple and undeniable, maybe even an inescapable truth that universally people have come to view a church building as the place to encounter God. Like that in the Bible Belt, I mean, that's, that's, that's it, right? That the church build, that's where we go to worship God. That's where we go to hear from God. That's where we go to encounter God. And people see it like that, culturally speaking, though we understand biblically that that's not exactly true. Culturally, that's how the world sees it. The world sees it like that. Let's be honest, Christianity has kind of promoted that idea for 1,600 years. The church building I mean, it's been a big, big thing. It's played a huge role. It's been significant. The house of worship. With every major religion, we also see physical locations, buildings, as the place to encounter God. In Islam, they have mosques, shrines, all kinds of things. Judaism, they have the temple, and they have the synagogue, they have their places, their holy places that they go to encounter God. So universally, there is an idea that exists that this is the place that I go to encounter God. Now, this is what's ironic about it. More often than not, when a person rebels against God, when a person runs from God, what one place do they never step foot in? Church, right? I'm never going to church. I'm not going there. I've even had conversations with people that are like, man, if I go there, I'm going to get struck by lightning, man. Like, you don't know what I've been doing, what I'm, what I'm up to. Like, I got my skeletons in the closet. I go to church, and it's like, dude, if God was going to strike with lightning, it's, he's not waiting until you get to the building. Like, God can strike you with lightning right where you are if God's wanting to strike you with lightning. As a matter of fact, God would probably prove a bigger point, striking you in the bar or wherever you happen to be. Like you're at the strip club, you know you're not supposed to be there. And you're like, if I went to church and Jesus knew this, I'd get struck by lightning and there you are. Boom, lightning bolt. The entire evening would change for the other people that are hanging out. (laughs) Quickly, putting clothes on, exiting the building. Like, Like people have this idea like I'm not going to church because that's where God is. And man, me and God aren't on the same page right now. So I'm not going. It's also interesting, right? That that there are people that finally break down. Like they come stumbling into church. They find themselves at the altar and they give their life to Jesus. And then they immediately enshrine 
the building, right? Like to the point that if little kids are running around, like how dare you in the house of God? And it's like, um, it's not the house of God, actually. And like they want their plaque on the pew because there's something special about that part of the pew. And they don't want anything to change. And like people will end up enshrining things within church. Why? Because that's the place they encounter God. And so they come back to that place and they light candles and incense. And that's where they have to take communion. Like it's a truth that culturally the church is viewed as the place where God is. Now we know that that's not true and that's not the case, but here's the deal. Though we hold a biblical view that the people are the church, the building has no intrinsic significance, we encourage you, I encourage you to bring the lost to church, to encounter Jesus. First, because our faith sometimes needs a point of contact. And that's not unbiblical. James says, if there's those sick among you, let him call for the elders of the church to be anointed with oil, knowing that it's then the prayer that provides healing, not the oil. But sometimes people need the point of contact. Sometimes people need to go to the place that they view God as being to do business. Like sometimes our, our faith needs that. Like Jesus is all the time using things, giving them significance, knowing that our faith needs that. But, but think of it this way. Christians are not encouraged to bring the lost to church because the building is where we believe God only works. We encourage Christians to bring the lost to church because this is the place that the lost expects Jesus to work. See what I'm saying? And so these men... Yeah, our job as Christians is to go into the world and to speak. But then when there are those that aren't listening or those that are deaf, we're to bring them to a place that they can encounter Jesus. Not that this is the only place they can encounter Jesus, but in their mind, I promise you. Why are they so hesitant to come? Because sometimes they get wigged out with church. May we be like these friends. May we bring the deaf to the place where they can encounter a Savior. Now, though they desired Jesus to heal their friend, we should point out that they asked Jesus to heal their friend in a certain way. We're told that they begged Jesus to do what? To put his hand on him. No doubt they had probably seen miracles that Jesus had performed. They had seen Jesus you know, place his hands onto someone and a miraculous healing take place. They had observed that, okay, maybe this is the way, like they're holy hands, right, that, that are happening, like magic fingers of Jesus. And so they're like, they're begging Jesus, just lay your hands on him because we know that there's power in those palms, right? So they're asking Jesus to heal in a certain way because they expected that Jesus would work in a certain way and so this might explain to us why Jesus, he handles the situation, and let's be honest, kind of a bizarre way. He does something, he does something that if you saw me do, you'd think I, I, 
you think I lost it. Like, you think I was off my rocker. Now, let's look at the scene of activity. They bring their deaf man friend with the speech impediment. They bring him to Jesus. They're begging Jesus to do something. Jesus is probably within a multitude. And what does Jesus do? We're told that Jesus takes him aside from the multitude. So Jesus takes this deaf man to a private setting. And then Jesus takes his fingers and he puts his fingers into the man's ears. Kind of rubs him a little bit. Now, realize, this deaf man, no idea who Jesus is, who Jesus is has, has never seen this before. He's standing there, and, he, and he's thinking, this man just put his fingers in my ears. Like, I don't want you putting your fingers in my ears. That's kind of gross. If you came up saying, Zach, I'm having a hearing issue. Can you put your finger in my ear and pray? I'm going to be like, I'll anoint your head with oil but that's as close to your ear as I'm getting. Like, eh. Jesus, fingers in the ears. And then what does he do? Spits. And then what? Takes his fingers, grabs his tongue. They didn't teach me this in Bible college. Like, that this is the way to heal. Now, why is Jesus doing this? Like, why fingers in the ears, spitting, tongue grabbing? Like, other than picking on the poor deaf guy with the speech impediment, like, what purpose is Jesus, like, what's the intention here? Now, I think that that this was Jesus' way of getting this man's attention or communicating to this man about what's, going to take place because this man doesn't know. So it's kind of significant. Fingers in the ears could be Jesus's way of letting this man know like, hey, I'm about to do something to these, you know, in the ears, okay? So the ears, I'm, you can't hear me. I understand that. I'm speaking slow. I shouldn't even be speaking. You can't hear me. So fingers in the ears letting you know that I'm about to, to, to fix this. And then grabbing the tongue, letting him know that I'm about to fix that too, So this man's kind of standing there like, I don't know why I'm here, but oh, fingers, my ears, tongue, my mouth, my speech. And then you're kind of left with the spitting. (laughs) Like, okay, did Jesus, maybe he's just coughing up phlegm, allergy seasons, I don't know. Had a big loogie he had to dispose of before he, you know, he's clearing his throat, could be. Or, probably more likely, that Jesus is spitting is communicating to the man that he's about to heal the man of his ears and his, his mouth. Now, how, how do you get to that? In the ancient world, saliva was viewed as medicinal. It was viewed as, as being medicinal. And so it could be that Jesus' spitting was to indicate that, hey, I'm about to heal you. This is all medical, Okay. At least it's a theory. It makes sense. Now, on a side note, it is a reality. No, is it such a reality? That when Jesus can't get our attention with his words, like like when Jesus is speaking to you and you're not listening, that Jesus will often, at that point, implement more extreme measures to get your attention. Car accident marital conflict, 
sickness, you get fired. It's true, isn't it? That if Jesus can't get his atten- our attention with his word, that he'll get our attention using more extreme measures. We'll leave that to a B-side. Either way, there is no formula to the way that Jesus healed. They wanted him with touch, but Jesus is making it clear that his power was not dependent on a method, but was instead dependent on a person. Because it's at this point that Jesus does what? That we're told that he looks to heaven. The glory for the healing would would go to God. And then we're told that he sighs. It's the Greek word stenazo that means to groan with grief. And can't you imagine that as the creator, viewing flawed creation, flawed creation that had been brought about by the, the effects of sin, that Jesus moaned. It wasn't supposed to be this way. This moaning, this sighing, it's deep. It's been said that sin is the desperate condition of a fallen humanity. And then we're told that Jesus says to him, epathra, that is, be opened. Now, epathra is a command in Aramaic. And Jesus spoke Aramaic and probably spoke Greek. So Jesus utters an Aramaic phrase. He's in a Gentile area. No doubt, this is for those surrounding him. It's a command. So Jesus commands Epathra. And then we're told, and we kind of view this almost as a translation, that is be opened. Now be opened is a Greek verb. That means to open thoroughly what has been closed. Think of it this way. Epathra is the command. That is be opened is the result of the command. Because what happened? This man was healed. Now, I I can't help but also observe that Jesus, a pathra be opened, directed to who? This man. Jesus is talking to a deaf man, right? Like, that's interesting to me. Because who's he talking to? It It can't be the man. The man can't hear. Jesus is speaking in such a way that it's bypassing human ears and it's going directly to the man's heart. That Jesus spoke to the man in such a way that the voice that was in the man's head that helped him process the world could hear it. That's powerful. And immediately his ears were opened and the impediment of his tongue was loosed and he spoke plainly. Two areas, right? Broken flawed from the original design are fixed by the creator, Jesus. He didn't heal the man through his touch. The idea, fingers in the ears, fingers on the tongue, spits, looks to heaven, sighs, and speaks. The man was healed not by the hands of Jesus, but healing came by what? The word of Jesus bypassing the man's ears that were limited and going directly to his heart. And a transformation immediately took place. Jesus said to him, he spoke and what happened? Creation obeyed. It reminds me of Genesis where God said, let there be light. And what happened? There was light. And God spoke 
and creation existed. Now, if the fact that the man's tongue was loosed, his ears were opened, wasn't enough of a miracle. I I think sometimes we read through this and we miss the most radical aspect of the miracle. The most radical aspect of this miracle is that after his ears are opened, his tongue is loosed, Mark tells us that he spoke plainly. Now, plainly is the Greek adverb, orthos, meaning rightly. In Luke 7, Peter actually answers Jesus and he says, I suppose the one who forgave more, and Jesus said, you have judged rightly, or he uses the word orthos, rightly judged. So it's not just that this man had a simplicity of language, but he had a completion of language that he could speak completely, rightly, whole, instantly. He's never heard a sound. He's never heard language. He has no chance to see, observe, replicate sound. And immediately, Jesus speaks, and not only does his ears work and his mouth works, but Jesus equips him with a fully functioning vocabulary. Unbelievable. With a young one at the house doing a little reading on it, it takes a child three years, a human being, three years to learn language. That's in a very formative stage of life. This man is older, much older. I took two years of Spanish. I know nothing. Like, I can't learn other languages at this point. My brain doesn't work that way. I can't figure it out. But my son is rapidly learning language. Three years, though. Before 18, 15 months, he's learning one word every three days. At 18 months, something magically happens in his brain, and he's learning 10 words a day. You learn language all the way up until the age of 30, which means I have three more months to learn a few more words, which is exciting to me. But for those of you older than 30, you're stuck with the words you've got. It's weird when you observe the the interesting science behind learning language. This man, there was no time. It was immediately, instantaneously, Jesus spoke and the man heard and the man began to speak plainly. And think of how liberating it was for this man. The miracle is that not only Jesus healed or fixed the things that were broken, but he provided him a vocabulary. More than likely, both Greek and probably threw an Aramaic just to round it all out. Then Jesus commanded that they should tell no one. But the more he commanded them, the more widely they proclaimed it. And they were astonished beyond measure. I read one scholar that said that there's no way to actually translate the Greek word there into English. Basically, they were flabbergasted, was the word used. Beyond measure, saying, he has done all things well. This is the Gentiles. He makes both the deaf and he makes the mute to speak. Now consider the contrast here between the Jews and the Gentiles. God had told the Jews to be a witness to the world. And what had they done? They kept it to themselves. But now in a Gentile region with Gentiles, Jesus tells them to not tell anyone. And what happens? The more he stresses, like, no, seriously, guys, don't tell anyone. What do they do? They go tell everybody. 
You see, I think, I think there was a point Jesus was making to his disciples. A, 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 an amazing point. This contrast between the Jews and the Gentiles. But I want to close with this phrase. I love it. Concerning Jesus. He has done all things well. You know, we talk about, and we encourage you, right, to do all things to the glory of God, right? That if you're at work, work hard to the glory of God. If you're a student with your studies, study hard to the glory of God. If you're a musician, learn your craft to the glory of God. We encourage people to excel, to do well, because it brings God glory. And that's true. But I also want to point out something else. That Jesus was described as a man who did all things well. When he taught, it was well. When he walked, it was well. When he was a friend with someone, it was well. No matter what Jesus did as a carpenter or as a rabbi or as a savior, Jesus did all things well. It spoke to an integrity. It spoke to a character described in Jesus, which means that we're to not only do all things well because it gives God glory, but we're to do all things well as Christians because it's Christ-like. Because that was Jesus. You see, I think sometimes you are a bad witness because you don't do all things well. That people look at you and you're supposed to be representing Jesus and they're reaching conclusions about Christ by observing you and they look at how you cut corners with your finances or how you don't take care of your yard when you're supposed to be a good neighbor. You fill in the blank. Jesus did all things well. Do you? It's not just about glory to God. It's about a manifestation of godliness within our own lives. But I also want to tell you that we take this as an incredible mandate for our church. I might be the pastor in the sense that I stand here on Sundays and I teach a Bible study and I provide some leadership and some guidance to the church and whatnot, but, but the pastor of this church, the head of this church is Jesus. We just get our cues from him. That's the way it works. He's the pastor. We want him to call the shots. But here's the deal. I can tell you that if Jesus does all things well, that we want to do all things well. Which is why we want to start on time and we want to make sure the building's clean and we want to make sure that there's a flow. All things well doesn't always mean all things are good or great. But I tell you, I try to make sure that every Bible study, that I do all things well. Because that's what Jesus would want for our church. And Andy does, works hard to do all things well. That at our church, that's what we want to be known for. It's sad. When I think sometimes people go to church and they see that it's so sloppy and how it's amateur hour. Heaven forbid you reach that conclusion coming here. Because we want to represent Jesus, who did all things well. Your church, but also you, the church. May you too 
do all things well. So, Father, Lord, we thank you for your word. 